For November 1st, 2021, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 696. I'm from the dogs, and I'm here to help. Hey, it's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of super spooky scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve the overthinkers are your spooky friends from the internet we're never happier than when we are sitting around and uh and trying to uh scare each other which is i think what we do most of the time i'm matt and that's pete hey pete happy halloween happy halloween matt I'm scared. I'm so scared. Like the, like the kids in the Blair Witch Project. I'm so scared. I'm so scared. Ah. Yes. My, my, uh, my dog is here. He can sense my distress. Gus can, Gus, like a loyal, like a loyal hound. Um, my, my boon companion, my, you know, man's best friend, the best creature ever to walk on four legs. Speaking of which, um, I gave Pete, some very simple criteria for what we were going to talk about on this Halloween episode. You know, I, you, you know, I'm on record on, I'm, you know, everyone who listens to this podcast knows I'm a big wuss. I don't like scary things because they scare me. I don't find the experience of being terrified. I don't find any of that like pleasurable, the like the cycle of like parasympathetic nervous system arousal and, or sympathetic nervous system arousal and parasympathetic nervous system discharge that ah oh, okay we're all we're not we're not actually trapped in the basement of a of a killer clown you know like that that has no attraction for me it, it i don't want to do i don't want to do pete i don't want to do i said a scary movie but mm-hmm. it should be uh it should have some kind of tangential or you know interesting relationship to Halloween. So what right. what does Pete Frenzel, my so-called friend, subject me to on <laughs> on Halloween? What does he in a in a in a in a move of of calculated cruelty crueler crueler I think than any of the inhumane things visited on the contestants in Squid Game, uh, for which you know see a a future episode of the podcast crueler than any of the, the intricate traps that the killer clown plays on the, on the, you know, people in saw, uh, Pete gives me a, a film that I can only describe as emotionally scarring, uh, a, a, a film where, you know, that was a constant. I, I watched it through the gaps in my spread fingers uh and and yet uh, uh, you know uh, and a, a film for which the 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 like the level of terror that i experienced on a moment to moment basis is uh you know akin only to being uh, you know i don't know a child who's lost your parents in a big <laughs> so, and oh, wait what was prominently featured in this film a terrified child who had lost her parents in this film just just blow after blow to my sense of security and well-being and the tangential connection to halloween was that a child dropped a pumpkin on the ground and it smashed (laughs) and and that was it what was this film what was this phantasmagoria what was this this horrifying uh ordeal uh through which i was made to suffer by my so-called friend pete fenzel it was a little film called homeward bound the incredible journey (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> I don't even know. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, Pete, mission accomplished. And so my question <laughs> for you, Pete, is what on earth do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> so for those of you who are unfamiliar, Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey is a movie that came out in 1993. And it is the rare uh, animal movie that is both live action and and has voiceovers from human actors, mm. but the animals have no sort of apparatus or uh, anything to move their mouths, right? So this is this is a movie starring a dog, a dog, and a cat, but it is also a movie starring radio legend and uh, golden age of Hollywood suave dude Don Amici, right, and uh, Sally Field and Michael J. Fox as a proud and noble golden retriever, a uh, a smart-talking, fancy-pants uh, Himalayan cat, and a uh, tr- deeply traumatized rescue dog who narrates the film as a parable about prison, re- prison recidivism. <laughs> um, so yes, Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey is a bunch of footage of animals that is talked over by actors such that they are the voices of the animals. I'm a dog. I'm a cat. And it is based on a it is both based on a true story and on a fictional book at the same time, (laughs) (laughs) which should tell you all you need to know about the veracity of the events that and the mountain lion catamount catapulted off of a seesaw into a river should let you know just how realistic this movie is. Um, It is a movie. Right. So, okay. It is connected to Halloween, you could say, because Halloween is about dressing up as things, and this <laughs> is a movie where people are pretending to be animals. It's also uh, – Halloween is a holiday where you go out and go for a sure. walk. I mean the cat The cat was in some sense a sexy cat. You know? <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, and one that met all manner of misfortune, which is uh, a, a uh, perhaps – a familiar sort of feeling for those of us who have gone out and partied on Holloway's and Tates of <laughs> in York. Younger, right, in younger, in younger days. <laughs> yes. With, so. with other, with spooky motives. Yes. The, uh, yeah. But, um, I don't know. I, you know, it's a, it's a film of animal footage talked over by a person. So right. is March of the Penguins. Pete. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, but they're not being, actually, I haven't seen March of the Penguins. I've seen Happy Feet, though. So imagine <laughs> right. if March of the Penguins was really Happy Feet, uh-huh. right? If they were sort of the same, I guess. Although I haven't seen March of the Penguins, so I wouldn't know. But yes, it is the story of three animals who are dropped off at a farm when their family is forced to move to San Francisco. So it's also a critique on real estate prices, uh, urban density, (laughs) gentrification, and sort of uh, the sort of forcible movement of excess population from the inner city to suburbs uh, against the will of both the host and the guests. This is interesting, right? Because the the – the uh, you know the film is called Homeward Bound. So spoiler yes. alert: the the three lovable animals after a lot of uh, after a lot of you know travails and some misfortunes that are or I, I guess setbacks or se- something that are really upsetting, really <laughs> very very upsetting on a moment to moment basis. But they do they do get home. Uh, yes. They do get home at the end. And, um, you know, your, uh, your mileage may vary in terms of just how harrowing and traumatic you find the 1993 Disney children's film Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. I would put it beneath 101 Dalmatians in its general <laughs> level of trauma, <laughs> but but maybe above Oliver and company, but below the Aristocats, right? <laughs> all of which don't feature real animals, right? Oh, so. that's interesting. Yeah, let's not. <laughs> oh, God, let's not make me watch all of the animal um 
all of the the animal films. Um, well, we're not even going to talk about. I mean, I could wreck you with Fox and the Hound, and I didn't. Oh, do that. it's not. It's. I mean, uh, I have I have traumatic memories from my <laughs> from my childhood. This is my. Yeah. You know, like uh, this 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 podcast is my cry for help. You know, it's a, um, like a, like a howling, you yeah. know, barking golden retriever, um, at the, uh, <laughs> you know, it's silhouetted against the, the night sky. Um, but no, they, they do get home. And when they get home, like the, the town where the parents live, where the family lives from which they, you know, the, the inciting incident of the movie is that they're going to go for like temporary work. The, uh, the father who is Ted Stryker from airplane, Ted yes. Stryker, Ted Stryker from airplane, Stryker, 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 uh, from airplane is, um, a professor of some kind (laughs) and he he has a he has an apple ii computer with a copy of print shop on it and he uh you know um but he has to go to san francisco um they live in a house they live in temporary faculty housing which is like apparently like one of the painted ladies you know from the the opening credits of full house or something they live in a a surprisingly plush uh you know faculty temporary housing um thing like most when i when i've seen most of them they look like they look like uh I don't know, Soviet era brutalist blocks, you know, that's like not, yeah. not a, a gorgeous, you know, San Francisco like, like, style, like Charlie Munger's the commission at UC Santa Barbara. Yeah. Like the, 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 the right, exactly. The, <laughs> it's just a brick of people and fire death. Beautiful, right? yeah, exactly. Beautiful clabbered house with bay windows. And apparently though, apparently not big enough to hold, to hold the animal. So this is the exciting, yeah. in, this is the exciting incident. No, the inciting incident that the family is going to go for a little while to San Francisco. And, uh, because it's a city, you know, there isn't room to have these these three animals who kind of run and play in their big suburban yard or you know well whether it's suburban or not and so they're they're going to stay they're going to be a dog and cat sit for for a little while but when they get home you know the the place where they were living before has like a sizable rail yard you know there's like there's some and uh, you know many many tracks with trains you know coming every which way that the the animals have to cross at great peril <laughs> animals in peril yes. um but like this is not a town that is you know bereft of industry you know this is not a town that is bereft of some features uh, of you know some features of urban life like uh you know like an industrial um like you know i don't know some industrial activity so you know i don't know I, I don't know to what extent i you know i suppose that that san francisco is more urban but the i don't know you know what the the causes really for for leaving well, the animals like they can live in a house like they can you can take them for walks to pee my my god the the dog that you hear uh barking on this podcast lives our our co-podcaster gus lives in an apartment and i just take him out several times a day so like it's possible it, it, it is worth okay let's take a pause here right so what you're saying is that the professor has to go to san francisco with his family for a while doesn't bring the dogs and the two dogs and a cat, right? And they get left at a farm, presumably temporarily, until the family can come back, right? Right. Though uh, Stryker, yeah. though you know Ted Stryker from from Airplane does kind of sound like a like a crappy stepfather at the beginning. Well, yes, that, that it's yeah, like, yeah, that was yeah. You know, I don't know. It's you know, it's only temporary. He says lyingly. 
yeah, yeah, exactly. so, it does so turn continue. out to be temporary, but you do get the sense that this guy is kind of a poop heel and like is, you know, uprooting, uprooting this family, um, you know, for his for his own convenience. So it is worth noting that the three animals, right, all see themselves. They each see themselves as belonging to one of the three kids. They don't see themselves as belonging to the family as a whole. Right. right. Each one has a kid who in the style of owners and their pets are similar, has a sort of similar character or soul to them, right? Sure. Even if they're not exactly the same, right? So none of the animals have a particular affinity or loyalty to the stepfather, right? Who has come into the family recently, presumably, I guess, right? Right. Um, although it's been a little while because it starts with, it, it start, you, you see their wedding, right? You see the mother marry this new guy. One of the dogs eats the wedding cake in an active emotional protest, right? Um, we don't hear what happened to the previous guy, I don't think. So we should presume that he is dead, right? That she's a widow, that she's a widow because this is like, it's like Air Bud. The dad is dead, right? Sure. So there's a dog, right? The dog is there to stand in for the dad because the dad has died. And so you really do think that the stepfather is doing this because either he's allergic to animals or he can't deal with the sort of family legacy that the previous man left behind. Note, of course, that the stepfather has dark hair and at least the two boys have like very blonde hair. Right. And sure. if you watch Game of Thrones, you would know that means that something is afoot. Uh, the seed is strong. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> black of black golden head. Um, but yes, you think at first one of the many surprisingly emotional moments in this movie is realizing because you think at first the stepfather wants to get rid of the animals that actually the stepfather is, is sort of has a difficulty communicating his feelings about things. Right. And he actually goes on a sort of wire esque quest behind the scenes to like subvert the resources of his office to uh to conduct a, a a search a detailed search for these animals once he hears from the farm where they were staying that they have vanished right because as you as you mentioned yes this is the inciting incident but what happens is the animals being left at the farm and not knowing the people there right and then there's a miscommunication about one of the people leaving and one of the people not knowing the animals are there how, how do you not fed. know her it's gene smart from designing women <laughs> You know, it's, she's famous. You know? Chance was in the pound, man. Oh, okay. Actually, no, he probably would have watched Designing Women. They didn't, yeah, right. It was, it was network television, right? It was probably just on the probably just on the on the screen with the rabbit ears, you know. Yeah, but the animals are so attached to the kids and so confounded and alienated by being left on the farm that they leave the farm to go find the kids. Mm. And one of the things that makes this movie interesting, in addition to the idea that the stepfather then leaps into action to attempt to find them, which is a big reversal from how he's set up, right? From a, from maybe across the country. I don't know how far away they are. I thought it might have been an East Coast, West Coast thing just to make it super far, but no, original, it sounds like, yeah. yeah, it sounds like they're, they're like one is in, in the, the, well, say it, from the like the Western Sierra to the Eastern Sierra or something like yeah. that, which is from like, I don't know, from, from, uh, uh, Visalia to well, I guess this yeah to like what what's on the other side Lee Vining or or you know I don't know whatever is whatever's on the other side of the Sierras you know the one the side that you go well Pete you know you you go you take the five uh you're going on the five you're on the grapevine right you're gonna what go you you're gonna cut through the Antelope Valley right. You're, 
Uh, so this is all sort of like through the hinterlands of California. I don't know why. Why? Yeah, exactly. The the yeah. the Sierra the Sierra Nevada. Actually, it's it's uh, there's a scene in which a, a geography teacher, like a elementary school or middle school geography teacher, explains it. Like the the oh. Sierra. Um, you know, stretches, stretches north and south, makes it the second largest mountain range, Pete, the second largest in the Western United States. Um, but yeah, it, it, uh, extends north and south. And the Sierra Nevada mountain range contains the highest point in the contiguous 48 states, which is the peak of Mount Whitney. So, uh, there's a, there's a fun thing for you. It is, in fact, an incredible journey. These animals go on, <laughs> try to get home through these mountains, right? Yeah. As, um, as and, they are, yeah. yeah, as they are. Um, homeward bound. Anyway, we don't need to, to dwell on the plot, uh, forever and ever. <laughs> though I'll, you know, I'll, I'll point out the, the particular psychological cruelty of every single, um, every single thing that happens. But it is, I don't know, it, it is interesting, like what, what the, the, um, the actors giving voice to the character, to the, the characters, the dogs, uh, and cat, are um Sally Field as the mm-hmm. you know as the cat who is the only girl and is sort of uh the cat's name is Sassy uh which gives you gives you a sense of the character develop the level of character development um uh who is you know uh a fancy looking long-haired cat doesn't like to be dirty or wet or outside you know uh Michael J Fox is the dog who is right. you know scrappy and uh, belongs to the youngest son and kind of like His name the young- is chance yep. yes uh like the youngest son is um is uh you know i don't know a youthful kind of disorganized you know like doesn't really have executive function gets uh uh gets distracted at at uh inconvenient moments and then the older kind of leader of the pack uh shadow a golden retriever is voiced by, and I'm not quite sure how to say this, Don Amici, Amici. I think that's his name. Yeah, yeah, Don, who is a like a matinee idol from the 40s, uh, who by this time is, uh, you know, um, has gotten on in years and has one of those. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, who's who's a good? Oh, you know, like uh, Sam Elliott in The Big Lebowski, where it's just that, or like Jack Palance, you know, has one of those really reassuring kind of voices. The sort of voice that might do a voiceover in a financial services commercial <laughs> or, you know, something, something like yeah. that. Or, uh, yeah, exactly. Something where you want to like, uh, you can trust us not to, I don't know, not, not to, to call in your car loan or, you know, whatever it is like that. Yeah. Right. And so like, this is the kind of the, the elder, the older wise voice, you know, shadow, shadow is, you get the sense that he's like, what, I don't know, eight or nine, as opposed to Michael J. Fox, who's probably like two, you know, as a, in, in human years, Pete, those are human years. Yes. Um, so that like, uh, uh, and he, he they're, they're doing a particular, they're doing a particular thing. So I guess like to, to what extent do you think these characters are characters and, and to what extent are they something more like archetypes and like what to, how, how, what is the structure of that archetypal, you know, the the kind of organization that we're, that we're presented with here. So, okay. 
So okay. I have I have two different schema that I think interact to answer this question. And then the first schema is the idea, uh, which is necessitated by the medium, right? Which is mm. the, the, or the form rather the form of the story is that we are watching people narrate over the dogs and the cat running around. And this is different from voicing a cartoon character, uh, because, uh, well, the experience of it is different, right? The, the mouth moving and your mouth moving is different, right? And also I think, I, I, I feel like watching this, that the, the voice actors were watching the the footage of the animals while they were recording it. Um, mm. It sort of seems that way. That's how it feels, right? Whereas I think in a cartoon, you have to write the mouth to match the dialogue that's being said, right? Right. Um, and as such, they're also because of the familiarity. Well, no, of I, I think they start. Uh, I they start think with like they a rough s- cut and th- then they do yeah, the talking. I think, yeah, I think you do the talking and then they animate to the talking because you don't want the actor like constrained by some like random, you know, silent guess at what the, you know, what the pace of the actor's delivery might might be like. But but this is neither neither here nor there. What's there's no mouths moving. So you hear you look at the you look at the animal and right. they're just standing there or uh, sitting there or whatever and you hear you hear a voice so it is in some sense disembodied but yes. you you understand which voice belongs to which animal i partly through cutting and focusing and uh, on particular ones but partly because like of just of course you know yeah. um it it is it is similar i think in this respect to the 1989 film look who's talking in its mission, which is the, and I think has a similar phenomenology. The phenomenology also is that there is a real world experience that perhaps you could speak to Matt of, of having a dog, right. And, and imbuing and projecting your perception of the dog's emotional life onto it Mm -hmm. by giving it a voice that you talk to it in its own, from its own perspective. Right. Yeah. I want, I want to have a snack, right? Like I'm hungry, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, or the way in which people, yeah, and my my dog is normally apologizing for things. <laughs> well, so, give oh, us a little bit of Gus's voice, oh, right? Really, this very. I feel like this is more intimate. I feel like I would rather appear nude in the show art <laughs> for this for this podcast than 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 do the. But okay. I, I will let you think about it. If no, you I'll want. do the actual. I'll okay. do I'll do the actual voice that we do for you. It's a oh uh, hi, I'm I'm Gus. I'm your dog. Oh, <laughs> were those your shoes? Well, uh, I ate them. I'm a dog. Uh, yeah, I, I chewed them. Oh, were, were those your, your, uh, $200 running shoes that you got because you're, you're training for this race? Yeah. Well, the laces were there and, uh, I'm Gus, I'm a dog and, uh, yeah, that's why I'm just doing my dog thing here. Yeah. <laughs> Happy uh, Halloween, Matt. You transformed yourself <laughs> through performance. Did you see my long floppy ears dragging, you know, dragging in my water bowl and then like on the dirt of the ground and becoming encrusted <laughs> with filth? Um, they're not, they are a, uh, they, they are a, uh, an adorable breed, the noble basset hound, uh, sort of in the abstract. If you know one in person, they're actually kind of disgusting, but uh, you come to love it in, in a, perverse way right. but uh, so, uh yeah uh, well uh sorry pete you're you're going on so so uh I, so, I don't understand these things i'm a dog but okay. uh these sure thing gus that's yeah. all right okay oh, 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 hey good boy good boy good boy uh, <laughs> yeah. um the uh <laughs> But that you know, yeah, yeah, you, it is kind of like that, right? You do, yeah. uh, you do a voice 
for for your animal and that that's a voice like you know i don't know dogs have dogs have personalities but i mean the i would say the variance in uh, uh, given normal treatment right like uh, absent absent anything kind of nefarious like the variance in dog personalities like i i don't know how many go- how many different types of golden retriever i i'll bet is like smaller than the variance in in human personalities so like to a certain extent what are you voicing like you're voicing the breed or you're voicing like an idea of the breed or you're voicing a you know a a sort of narrative role because like the there there's no reason that the the golden retriever has to be you know has to have that like jack palance and city slickers you know sort of grizzled uh and and yet strong you know like uh the vital you know kind of thing we're going home we're going home. Like the, the, it doesn't have to be that. There are a number of ways that that it can go. And so, without like something akin to a specific personality um, to do the uh, you know the the choices of of like the character of the the voice is definitely interesting. Yeah. I, so to step back from that for a second and suggest that when I talk to you and when adults talk to adults we obviously have to deal with the problem of other minds in some respect, right? In the sense that I don't really know what you're thinking or what you're really like from your own experience. And you don't know that about me, but I feel a closeness and connection with you and an intimacy with you. You're a good friend of mine, one of the best, right? I've been talking to you on this podcast for many years. And so because of that, right, because of that intimacy, there's a sort of desire for mutual understanding that gets uh, very, it gets fulfilled over time, right? We sort of feel satisfied with our respective mutual understanding and we allied the difference between ourselves. And it's helpful that we are in a lot of ways superficially very similar, right? And we can sort of skip the part. We can sort of skip the part where we're different people and there's a distance between us because we're different people. Sure. Because we can think of, okay, well, he's a person, I'm a person, we think the same way. When you extend this phenomenon to other beings that we have really close intimate relationships with right. and you but which are very different from us this uh, this sort of magic trick this sort of close up magic of of sort of guessing that the other person is just like you uh, it breaks down a little bit it gets stretched Sure. Right. And what it gets stretched into is the cinema of the late 80s and early 90s. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you have look who's talking. Right. And so the idea being that when you're giving a voice to a dog or a baby, <laughs> right, um, especially in these kinds of movies where we're not even pretending that the dog or the baby has full capability to talk. Yeah. Right. Uh, but but is being voiced through this sense of kind of mu- intimacy and mutual identification the campiness of the voice that's given to the creature I'm positing here is a reflection that we're in on the joke that they're not really like us, right? Mm. But we still feel so close to them that we feel comfortable giving them voices, right? And it's not like they're not anything. Obviously, there's reason that you care a ton for Gus. There's reason I care a ton for my little guy, right? I believe Gus is your actual human child. You've yeah, said that? Oh, no, I've, yeah, I've, I, I love him like my actual human child. That's exactly, know. exactly. Uh, and so, so in, in you want to, you feel comfortable and intimate enough with Gus. I would posit that you feel capable of giving him a voice, but you give him a campy voice because, on some level, you recognize that the distance between the two of you is somewhat in, uh, intra, uh, introversible, right? Yeah, I think and that's. This, yeah, I yeah. mean, I think that's right. Like, it's I, I do a kind of a cartoon style voice for Gus, right? Because right. 
in in a lot of ways they are they are like cartoons you know in that their their responses are i mean i think certain kinds of you know neurological patterns are are common to mammals um sure. you know and we understand things like fear or you know i don't know when the when fireworks go off and he goes absolutely bonkers and you know hides in a closet like that's i get that you know mm-hmm. i mean he doesn't have he, you know he doesn't have like a discursive cognitive function but i understand that sort of basic uh cognitive function so there's kind of enough there to be going on with um to kind of understand the what the the outline the skeleton the broad strokes of what um what he's experiencing and yet like the the discursive part of it is what i supply you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's like, uh, so, uh, you know, Gus is a basset hound. He's a scent hound. He's interested in, he's interested in things that smell and not that smell good. He's interested in things that smell, <laughs> smell strongly. Um, yeah. all kinds of gross things smell very strongly and he's very, very interested in, in those. And in order to, like, I don't have a, I don't have a thought technology to kind of bridge that gap. So I, you know, I make a, I, I do a lot of ridiculous, I do a lot of ridiculous voices. That's like, uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think this, uh, this trash can here on the street has a baby diaper full of poop in it. That is, <laughs> that is intriguing. Well, yeah. that is. Seriously intriguing, right? Like, and that's, you know, that's not what's, what's going on. It's a little, it's a little more basic, but like to, to a certain extent, that basicness makes it good. It makes it good cartoon fodder because good cartoons are, you know, an exaggeration of, an exaggeration of kind of recognizable drives or emotions in, you know, but kind of focused and, and amplified in, in particular ways. So that like, um, so that but but it is it's an interesting phenomenon to see it over live action footage because it it does kind of it, it does kind of shed light. It, it throws into relief the idea that that we kind of relate to these actual three dimensional, you know, flesh and blood beings, these these other mammals like um like they are cartoons. Uh because that's just the the that's what we're capable of doing. Like that's that's the kind of the best the best kind of relational technology that we can deploy to um to to meet and interact with them in a way that is, you know, I don't know, useful to us, I guess. Right. Exactly. And so on one hand, yes, there's this idea that we use this talk technology to relate to them. We make the dogs more human and the cats more human as a way of being able to comprehend and engage with what they're doing. But at the same time, we also, there's a a distance, as you've alluded to, between how we perform them when we talk to them in their own voices uh, and and how we might uh, talk to another person because we do also recognize that their character in the sense of their persistent personality as we experience it is different than a humans or an adults in the case of a baby, right? Sure. You know that Gus has the sees the world through smell, and so it would be inappropriate if Gus just had a normal voice, right? And so you're. I, I would say that we make the dogs both and the cat more human than dog and more dog than human, mm-hmm. right? The campiness and the distance of it is both to accentuate 
our humanness and their dogness. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and both of them are comfortable and not entirely unknown. And, and they're heavily employed through a variety of crises in Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey, so that we have a basis for emotionally connecting with what these animals are going through, which is, of course, travail and horror. Right. On this Halloween, on this haunted Halloween. But let's di- let's let's dive into that. But yeah. but this is why, by the way, sorry, b- brief digression. Yeah. This is why the like the robot police dog that there was footage of a couple weeks or months ago. You know that that like the NYPD was trying out or something. This is why it's an eldritch horror. Uh, you know because it's not. Um, <laughs> Because it's not cartoony enough, you know, I suppose, because it doesn't, because it sort of breaks a contract. Um, It breaks kind of an unspoken contract in the kind of the relationship between uh, between human and dog and try tries to. I don't know something. It's a something in dog's clothing. I can't, I can't say a wolf because a wolf, of course, is a type of dog. Uh, but that's yeah. It's a, uh, so 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 I I was thinking a little bit, Pete, that like the level. I, it's early nineties. I I would have pegged it as as late eighties. I was guessing like eighty seven or eighty eight. Though I guess like Michael J. Fox maybe would have been too young at that point to to do the voiceover the way he did it. Um, in in the movie but like i because i would have pegged it there because of the the like the level of peril um yes struck me as something that even by the 90s i remember getting sanitized out of children's entertainment yeah. uh a little bit and now you know now it seems like it's now it seems like it's gone and like a, a kind of like frenetic cutting style and a lot of like a, a broad range of cultural reference seems to have replaced um you know seems to have replaced uh any sense of like peril, any sense of real peril. I remember like a turning point for this for me was the, the movie free Willy. Um, and the, uh, the shot where the orca jumps over the rock jetty and swims to freedom is in the trailer of that movie. Right. And the, I, I recall reading at the time or hearing on TV or something like that. I recall becoming aware of an interview with someone who had been involved in the production of the film who opined our market research shows us that children are incapable of dealing with um, a, a suspenseful situation where they don't know the outcome. And I thought, wow, you should meet some children. <laughs> You should go, you should like, you should investigate the material circumstances of most children's lives in the world. Yes. And it would give the lie to your, your, uh, you know, false conclusion, conclusion then. But, you know, for, for whatever reason, right? Like as our, as our media, as our culture becomes coarser, you know, as there are like sort of, I see references to swear where I'm, I'm not a, a prude, I think like, I, but I am taken aback sometimes when I see like references to the F word on a sign, you know, on like a billboard or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, uh, like very clearly, you know, uh, you know, and very like clear basic innuendos or, or stuff like that. I, you know, I also think that like, there's more skin shown in advertisements or something than I remember, than I recall. Though I, you know, I was prepubescent in the 80s, so I, I may not have registered it in, in quite the same way. But then also, like, um, 
you know, I, I don't know. There are, there are a lot more things. There are kind of higher incidences of explicit things. You know, I don't know. I, I name checked Squid Game earlier, right? Like there's no, there's no age gating on Squid Game. I, I suppose like you can turn parental controls on on Netflix, but that's a pretty granular like on off switch. Uh, at, at least as I'm, as a non parent, as I'm aware of it. And like, you, you know, there, there are things that are worth letting your kids see to, to leave it off, but then they can also see Squid Game. Like that's, you know, it seems it's, it's horrifying. And there are other, there are other ways in which our, our culture has become more explicit. Um, the, you know, the widespread availability of hardcore pornography is the, the obvious one. And, and yet, um, like which flows unbidden into every inbox, you know, and hopefully into the spam folder where you don't have to like, <laughs> don't have to see it. Uh, and, um, and that's, you know, uh, and that's one trend. And yet there's kind of a countervailing trend, right? Where I feel like this, I feel like this movie is sort of too much, too much legitimate peril for the animals in an entertainment, which is ostensibly for children, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that like, uh, I don't know, like I, I, uh, like one of, one of the things we do with animals in, in, well, one of the things we do with animals in, in the world is to kind of project onto, onto them sort of helpless, like very young, very regressed versions of ourselves, you know, in actual, in actual circumstances of powerlessness or, or not understanding. So like as, right. you know, as infants or as, as very young children, yeah. you know, um, who, who didn't quite understand what was going on and yet were, were somehow in the world and like, and, uh, affected by it. And, you know, this is like, um, one of the reasons that uh one of the reasons that an animal is a great companion for <laughs> for a little kid uh but that like um so so the the peril is somehow worse you know because it's not like indiana jones falling off of a falling off of a waterfall you know mm-hmm. it's like it's it's like your sort of most most vulnerable projection of yourself uh, you know, falling off of the, of the terrifying, you know, swimming through the rapids and being, being, uh, swept over the, over the edge of the waterfall. And I just thought, I don't know. I, I, it was, it was interesting to see the level of, um, the, you know, jokes, jokes, jokes aside, it, it was interesting to see the level of like, of legit, uh, peril and kind of suspense, you know, um, sustained danger that, that was allowed to be, um, you know, I don't know, was allowed to be allowed that they were allowed to do. How were they allowed <laughs> to do that, Pete? Why were they, why were they allowed to do certainly more, you know, I don't know, certainly more upset. We, I was walking the dog today and someone had a skeleton in the passenger seat of their car, had a plastic skeleton. And I, I, I did kind of give a little, not exactly a start, but as like a, huh? <laughs> a second look to that skeleton. And this was far more upsetting than your dumb plastic skeleton in the passenger <laughs> seat of your car. I, I don't know. I, sorry. I monologued for a minute, but is it, does that, does that, uh, uh, I don't know. Does that resonate with you yeah, at all? Let me, let me, let me um, provide a couple touchstones, right? So when I think about, because I think you're identifying, oh, good. it would be notable, it would be comforting, Pete, to touch some stones at this. Point. Yeah, there you go. Um, there's some touchstones, right, to sort of ground us in in where we are at in this meta narrative that you're describing about danger yeah. and fiction, right? So I'm not going to go into Squid Game because we'll talk about that in a future episode. But 
one touchstone that I always think of is the Goonies. That the the stuff that happens in the Goonies is legit very dangerous. Right. Right. Uh, when they go down the water slide into the hidden cove, it, it that always felt to me like, man, that's kind of very sketchy. They could drown or die, right? Like right. in other ways, they get trapped. Um, and, and there, are, I think there are even guns in that movie pointed at children in a way that's you really believe that children are going to be like abducted or murdered. And so I think of Goonies as very firmly rooted in prior to this whole thing. And then there are a bunch of movies that are on both sides. So Home Alone, right? The first part of what makes the first Home Alone work is it's both. Right. Yes. Everyone talks about the whole thing about like, oh, Joe Pesci's head gets set on fire and Daniel Stern gets hit in the face with an iron and they would both be killed by both of these things. Right. And isn't it funny how all of this violence that happens to them would kill them many times over. But the movie does have a sense in which Kevin is alone and vulnerable and scared for real reasons because he's a child. Right. And there's like a sketchy dude with a shovel and he doesn't know where to get food. And yes, like he resolves these tensions, but the threat to him has to be real enough that the resolution of the tension has the satisfaction that it has. Right. Which is also, you know, recapitulated and kind of uh, reaches exegesis, I guess I would say, with the return of his mom, which sort of restores his childness. Right. Which has been cartoonified rather than adultified uh, as in his relationship with the with the robbers. Great. So that's sort of straddling it. I hadn't thought of Free Willy, but that sort of straddles it, too. Right. Because there's this idea that the animal ought to be free, but there's never really too much of a thought about, like, the animal's going to get eaten by a shark or it's going to eat a shark. or It's going right. to die. Right. Like the idea that if we just let the animal free, it's going to be fine. Right. Uh, yeah, we don't that, have to that worry about, really, you know. It's a matter – and that, that's what, that's because these are like anthropomorphized stories. It's about self-actualization. Yeah. It's not about the the actual reality of nature red in tooth and claw. Right, right, right. And these – and again, not out of the animal literature tradition of the early 20th century, which the, which Homer Bound comes out of, right? Um, which like stuff like Jack London, yeah. right? Um, where yeah, I was my, about to say Call of the Wild, favorite? yeah. Yeah, exactly. One of my personal favorite authors from that time period, Jim Kajelgard, whose name I don't know how to pronounce. I read like all his books. I'm sure they don't hold up, but I read them when I was like, you know, eight years old or something. And, and it's all about dogs in the wild and stuff. Um, very different sort of culture. Now, I feel like if you really want to identify when the culture has truly transformed, right, you got to look, you know, when we're talking about kind of anxiety of influence and kind of strong misreading and the transformation of culture by great works, if you do believe that there's any sort of purpose in having a canon, then maybe one of the canonical works should be the 1994 film Baby's Day Out, mm. uh, by which point all peril has been removed, right? The idea is that the baby has become a peril to the adults, right? You have the baby wandering around construction sites and obviously a real baby would die, right? A horrible, horrible death, <laughs> like like in a second, um, but instead, the baby flips over a, a, a piece of plywood that hits Joe Mantegna in the face, right, and and so on and so forth. So, and now we we can get to the point where there's lots of death, there's lots of murder, there's even you know lots of atrocity in our casual entertainment. But there does tend to be a pretty gross sense of alienation from the everyday sorts of situations that could really kill you, um, and and much more of a sort of extreme sense of imagined things that probably won't kill you. Right. You know, like I've been watching Jason Momoa in C and he's blind and he sneaks up on people with a machete and murders them. And it's like, 
<laughs> like, and they're blind too. And they engage in sort of blind sword combat. And it's like, okay, this, I mean, it's very bloody and it's very violent, but like, are you really scared of this happening in your life? Now, should you be scared of falling into a mud pit at a rail yard and being stranded with a broken leg and dying? Like that could happen to you, right? Jason Momoa is probably not hunting you with a machete. Probably. Right. Um, but but I mean, you could also say on Halloween that slasher movies are related to this because you heighten the degree of threat in this super campy or sort of super detached way. And a lot of them such that, you know, again, you and I never really truly connected with a lot of these horror movies. But I would posit that that there's a difference between being hunted by Freddy Krueger and like stumbling upon a bear. Right. Being like, oh, no, a bear. Right. It's and, and, and like, what am I going to do about this bear? One of the things there's I think David, about, there's a yeah. David Mamet movie about that. It's in there. We're like, you know, there's a Werner Herzog movie about it. Oh, yeah, sure. There you go. So ba- Baby's Day Out 1994. Yeah. Um, I, it's actually an, an interesting kind of text in in that tradition. I think would be the the cartoon that opens Roger Rabbit, the baby. Oh Her- yeah, the baby yep. Herman cartoon where Roger Rabbit is b- babysitting baby Herman, and the the house is a like just a an obstacle course of mortal peril for the for the baby, you know, who's like crawling over the boiling water on the stove, and uh, you know, I don't know who like the knives or or whatever are being flipped out of the the knife block and flung it at Roger's face and like it all gets displaced onto Roger who you know d- gets uh, d- uh poked with knives and the refrigerator falls on his head and all the baby wants to do is climb climb up to to uh have a cookie but like the the no, I guess I mean is it the same thing or is it not cuz the baby's never really threatened by the by the um you know, the baby is kind of a Forrest Gump figure, you know, who kind of stumbles through, stumbles unthinkingly through, uh, through history, you know, uh, with, without it really affecting him one way or <laughs> one way or I another. Mean, Forrest Gump is another touchstone here, right? He goes to Vietnam and he's fine. Um, I'm looking at a chart right now and the source for it is, uh, well, it's Statista, so I don't know exactly what that is. But it's a chart of mortality of children under the age of five in the United States, hmm. right? And between – at it is at a rate of about uh, – and this is what, out of 1,000. So when you're at 1,800, you're at 460 per 1,000, right? So like roughly half of the kids right. who are born make it to five years old. When you, draw, when you get to uh, – 1870 there's like a blip between 1870 and 1890 where there was probably some sort of illness where it sort of goes down and it goes back up but in that time period you're at about 300 right so you're at about a third a 320 340 300 right. so you start from half the kids die in 1800 uh you know two a third of the kids die in like 1870 you hit the next the next sort of flat line is world war one where it's and, and the Spanish flu, uh, which is you're at about 180 kids out of a thousand, right? So you're now at like one in it's le- it's like one in six, right? Kids die before they're five years old, mm-hmm. and then after 1920, it drops off a cliff, right? And so you go from 1920 in the United States, where you've got like one out of six kids are dead before they're five, 
to once you're at like you're at 1945, it's down to only 50 out of a thousand. Right. So that's like five percent. Right. And then and then you get to like 1960 and it's, you know, three percent. And then you get to 1980 and it's less than two percent. Right. And nowadays it's less than one percent in the United States. So this is a vast transformation in the realities of life. A vast, vast transformation in what it is to have a child because, you know, and this is something that's happened all over the world fairly recently, right, and continues to happen in a lot of places. But if you think about the fact that the, you know, the original book for this was written in what, like, um, I, I, I should probably look it up. The, the, there, it's a remake. It's not even really a remake. It's a, another movie with the same name, right? It's also based off the same book. Uh, so there's like a, uh, a 1980 film. There's like a 19, oh, that's a different one. Um, there's a 1962 film. Um, what is the, where's the book, uh, Homeward Bound, the book, or I guess it's called the incredible journey. Um, what I'm trying to determine is like, what is the level of peril that a child would face at the time that the incredible journey book was written? It's from the UK and it's in 1961. So if that's the United States, you're at a point where you're at about 3%, right? So that's a pretty late work. But if you're looking at something like White Fang, then you're back up when it's like, you know, sure, 16%. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So like, so, okay. So, but that's not, that's not, that's not something you're aware of as a child, right? Like the, the thing, the thing, and it's not something that, that is necessarily, I mean, I don't know. Do you think that, that children's entertainments reflect the I, I guess because children's entertainments need to sort of prepare the children for the the re- reality that they're going to find, and if you know one in six of your of your your friends doesn't make it to the to the age of five, that like is something that you're going to have to like process somehow. But it it doesn't seem like doesn't seem like that's something that you're i don't know factoring into your assessment of well, of well, uh, you know sesame street as a child i'm not necessarily right? saying okay so that's this is great because there's two angles to this right yeah. one is are the children scared of being killed right uh-huh. um are the parents scared that the children are going to get killed because um there you would think that they would be less likely to put this stuff in movies if the parents were more scared that their children would actually die. But then at the same time, the emergence of this cartoon violence, this sort of really, you know, simulacrum simulacrum, which we've been talking about so much, this PT cruiser of child violence mm. emerges at a point where child violence in real life is is super low relative to how it's been historically, right? Not right. violence, but death, right? Mortality is, and again, lots of this from disease, not from violence. So I wouldn't say violence per se, but like the actual like, mortality of small children is like super low at a point where people are comfortable with this kid crawling around. Now, then again, you go back to little rascals, eh, but you also go back to the three stooges, right? And we could do a whole thing. We'd have to watch one of those movies and talk about how violence works in that old style of slapstick. But the point being that if the animals in these stories are stand-ins for children, then I wonder if part of the, what's being processed in the literature of animal stories like Homer Bound, the incredible journey is the threats in the world that are that children face right Uh. and the level of danger in their day-to-day lives that a child might have to deal with or let me phrase that we sympathize with a child maybe having to deal with and that we project or transfer onto the dog who we see as the natural both proxy and guardian of the child um so okay i I will i want to say one thing you cried during most of this movie right 
Uh, or like a lot of it. A lot of it. Yeah. The, the, even the thing, I don't know, the, the whole thing, um, yes, uh, at the, uh, at the happy parts, uh, at the sad parts, at the scary parts, and at the non-scary parts. Yes. So at the, just, just (laughs) only during those times. There was one part of the movie where I just collapsed crying. I was crying so much. And I cried at other parts of this movie, but the part where I cried the most is the, scene you've already mentioned where they find the little girl lost in the wilderness there's an actual abandoned child (laughs) shivering and alone (laughs) in the wilderness like in a a frankly improbable situation (laughs) that she (laughs) managed to get that far away (laughs) that she managed on her own to penetrate that deeply into a national park you know uh Right. But yeah, right. the animals find the kid and the point of this, and we haven't even really gotten into the broader themes of the movie regarding community and caring for each other and feeling connected to each other. But it is in the nature and character of these dogs, part of their more dog than humanness, which is they find this kid. They want to take care of this kid. They want to protect this kid. That's what they do. They they take care of and protect the children that own them, even if the children don't really know or feel that that's necessary in their bougie Northern California lives. Right. But it's like, you know, that whole tearful moment where Shadow returns to Peter and is like, you're okay, Right. Just after he very nearly died. Oh, yeah. That was the thing. Yeah, exactly. That was that also to me. The dog was more concerned with the welfare of the child. And and he saw this. He saw this whole thing not as a great risk to himself, but as a sort of a necessary, you know, hardship to endure in order to fulfill his function as a good golden retriever to his boy, whose name was Peter. And yeah, all I, I can say to you <laughs> is, Peter, you're all right. <laughs> Peter, so, you're all right. So, so this is, as you, you were talking about, okay, are they doing the voice of the breed? Are they doing the voice of a dog they know? Are they trying to do a voice of a specific dog? But how do well would they even know a specific dog? Is is one dog, is one Basset Hound all Basset Hounds? No, Gus is the best one, right? But is one Golden Retriever every Golden Retriever? There's the moment, and there's a, there's a, a feeling that Shadow might be naive or like jaded by his patriarchal privilege right that shadow has these highfalutin ideas of being a protector of children and of being able to forge his way into the wilderness and even and even in the course of this movie i think part of why i I mean you had mentioned sam elliott i was going to say sam elliott is the pt cruiser and don amici is like the 37 ford that the pt cruiser is modeled after (laughs) right like like he is like the real deal old school stuff um but but his particular sort of performance lends this sense to the character that might be a joke right that might need to be humbled because he's from the suburbs what does he know about all this stuff right what is what does he have to do with protecting kids from anything and and he goes he's going to protect them from a frisbee um and he goes to the top of the pinnacle right like like uh like paradise redeemed like christ on the pinnacle right and and he and he sees the hiking trip the tour that's going through the valley right and he barks out to them and there's this man who comes out, right? This man who comes forward who is like toe-headed and blonde, right? I think. Um, at the very least, he very super superficially resembles the uh, an adult version of the character of Timmy from the Lassie series, right? 
that if you ever watched Lassie, I mean, Lassie is a dialogue with this movie, right? And he's like, what is it, boy? Right. And then the and this this cultural trope, which has been parodied to all get out, which is that a dog that finds a person in danger will be able to like telepathically communicate the nature of the problems through its barking like to uh, the boy that cares for it. Right. That is its best friend because the children, and the animal understand each other in a way that the adults and the animal don't necessarily do. Right. Lassie comes back and it's like, what is it, girl? Uh, you know, oh, no, she's in the well. We have to go get her. Right. And and this sort of apotheosis of the glory of the helper dog and like this idea of kind of like I mean, it felt like. I mean, it felt like the Dark Knight Returns when Batman puts the suit on again. Right. It felt like uh, it felt like uh, Tennyson's Ulysses. Right. <laughs> Not to yield. Right. The idea that like somewhere the idea of Lassie still exists. The sure. idea that like the dog is going to help the kid. It little, right? and the it dog little, is help it the little matters uh, that an idle dog matched with an aged boy. I meet and dole unequal laws unto a savage pack that hoard and sleep and feed and know not me. Yeah, that's a little Tennyson's Tennyson's Ulysses for you. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, but I mean, I have I'm a huge sore spot for uh, people saving each other. Like that is the thing that makes me cry in movies. People come unexpected people coming back to save you is the thing that makes me cry in movies more than anything else. Um, And why I cry things like Armageddon when the guy says, I'm a real Russian hero and jumps the thing over the canyon or whatever. (laughs) Like just like like points where someone shows up and is like, you know, I'm here to help. Right. Um, And that moment. I'm from I'm from the government. I'm here (laughs) from the government. I'm from the dogs. (laughs) I mean, the midnight bark. Right. The midnight bark from Dalmatians is such a wonderful, beautiful moment because we use the dogs to tell a story about what we see as what's the best about ourselves. Right. And like our our capacity for helping each other in times of dire peril with courage and kindness and attention. Right. And, And attention and competence. Right. We care and everybody cares. All the dogs want all the kids to be okay, except for like the bad dog in Balto who has to lose the sled race or whatever. There's going to be a bad one here and there. They have to be antagonists. But yes, like the, the, the this idea that is the dog there experiencing this peril at, because the dog meets the world as a child and these stories are to an extent about how dangerous the world is and in a way that, you know, people – fear for children that are entering it, right? Um, Or is the dog the sort of aegis of the child, right? The dog dwells in the child's world and is able to provide a degree of vigilance for the child that the child can't necessarily always provide for themselves, right? And that's the fantasy of the dog guardian, right? Uh, The original Bell and Sebastian, right? I'm OG Bell and Sebastian. Did you ever watch (laughs) Bell and Sebastian? No, not not back in the day. Oh man, that because the, the band is named after a, so, a, a e- television show. Aegis was a, a New York Times crossword clue <laughs> recently, <laughs> which is good because it has a lot of vowels. Yeah, but anyway, the sort of core thematic dichotomy in this is Shadow has all this uh, buy-in to society, what you might call society, which is of course always an inadequate word for what's really there. But mm-hmm. but the idea of like. Shadow super duper buys into the relationship between dogs and humans, 
right? As like the dog loves the kid, the kid loves the dog, the dog protects the kid, the kid the kid cares for the dog, right? And they each kind of shore up each other's places of weakness. And there's this duty, there's this devotion that's part of this relationship, this loyalty, the you know, best friend, right? And and uh, Chance, played by Michael J. Fox, is the rescue dog who you know is represents like, and I've said prison recidivism, right? The idea that he's been in the pound. He's been horribly mistreated. He's been in terror of his life from the system. And the system has so, you know, aggravated his mammalian sense of fear and put him on such a hypervigilant course that he always believes that he might go back. Yeah, he's traumatized. He's totally traumatized. And so he can't. So when he faces the adversity, his assumption is that it's it's going to be absolute and it's going to endure forever. Right. And like and like uh, and the only solution is to run away. Right. You have to get away from the from the badness. You have to get away from the betrayal. Right. Where shadow is. No, you have to go toward it. Right. You have to be the helper that Mr. Rogers sees right running into the dust cloud. Sure. Right. But Um, it's not I mean, yeah, it's a a lot of children's stories are are turned on a trope of of like a rupture in the family, like a separation and then a reuniting. Right. Yeah. And that like I I mean, the cat in the hat is a, a great one, like because what is the mother doing? What what murderous or erotic errand? <laughs> is the mother out on while uh while Sally and me are you know sitting uh, all the cold cold wet day you know staring out the staring out the window um the and and by the way why in the cat in the hat comes back why uh is uh, it referred to as dad's bedroom <laughs> perhaps in response to the mother's extramarital adventures in the first, uh, in the first cat in the hat, but that, that there's, there's sort of a rupture, there's a rupture in the family. And in, th- in this one, it, I mean, it illustrates something that's really tragic about childhood, which is that you're sort of insensible of a lot of the reasons for things and your, your, you know, um, perception of time is not an adult's perception of time. So the idea that like this change, this upsetting change is for now, but it's not for forever, you know, doesn't really, doesn't really track. So, so the, you know, I don't know the, the, I feel like I'm, I'm a little bit on the side of chance here, you know, because in the word of another eighties classic, they drew first blood, right? Like (laughs) they, the, the family abandoned us here, you know, with no explanation, like uh, set aside that we're, we're incapable of receiving an explanation, you know, right. but like the, they, uh, there has been a, a rupture in the contract, you know, between, between man and beast <laughs> right. know? that like, um, you know, that is the, the, the kind of the basis of our sense of like, of our sense of, of safety and of our sense that gives you something that, that, um, you know, uh, that gives you, that gives you something to live for, like something, something to, uh, an ideal, you know, or like that, that engenders this sense of obligation that, uh, shadow is always, shadow is always going on about. Also, by the way, shadow, sassy chance, terrible, terrible names. Dogs should have real <laughs> names. Um, yeah. you know, uh, but anyway, uh, and, I mean, and, I told you what we would have, we have a stuffed dog that we would uh-huh. have given the name that we would have had our real dog at the time, which is we have a stuffed dog named Luda because we always wanted to be at the dog park and be able to yell Luda. Uh, Luda! <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent. Oh, that's good. <laughs> but, but I guess, yes. But that like, part- and, and then, so like the, the, the interesting thing that happens is that right there, there's faced with, 
did you did you know? I'm not sure you you had this professor in college, but I had a, I had a literature professor who wrote um who who wrote a series of kind of prose poems about his his experience of playing dolls with his little niece, who he used to take care of sometimes. Oh. And it began it began with this, which I I can remember and quote almost verbatim: when when uh you know when the head falls off of my little niece's Barbie, she faces a choice: she can either detach from her imaginary world. Or uh, choose to have witnessed a rather alarming decapitation. In either case, I will glue the, hair, the head back onto the doll. But in the latter case, I will be a surgeon. Mm. And like the the you know the, the the extent to which an adult enters into to, into that fantasy world is is interesting. But like what's interesting, but uh, kind of beside the point of what I'm going to talk about, like the. The mind has a like compensatory, you know, has a defense mechanism where you can kind of create headcanon about the crap that your parents do, which seems incomprehensible or upsetting to you. Right. right. And that like what, you know, what is sort of really what is really going on in dad's bedroom? You know, what is mom really doing outside of the house? You know, and, and you have these things and like the the assumption just because he's totally bought into the system. Man, uh, Shadow's assumption is that Peter must be in trouble, you know, and or like he something's not right, you know. There, there's a visceral sense, like something's not right. Um, something, something in that like uh, ancient, in that like limbic brain, you know, like yeah. something, you know, tells him it's it's not right, and it just because and because it's a, a Disney movie, that story beat pays off. At the very end, when he says, Peter, you're okay. Oh, God, I, I was so sure something terrible had happened to you, and I had to check on you, and thank goodness you're okay. Like, you know, my my mission is, you know, my mission is fulfilled. Not like that that particular story circle is is closed. Um, that like... Uh, you know that that it's it's interesting that the the dog behaves kind of like a kid would in terms of making up a headcanon for why things have why things have happened um you know that is based on the level of experience uh that the child or dog is capable of uh is capable of understanding not like oh i think that ted striker from airplane has gotten a temporary appointment at the university of california uh and will be printing out to print shop signs on a dot matrix printer no because the 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 you know the kid can't understand that it's you know it's a little more basic and it's a little more primal and it's a little more focused on you know the the kind of primary relationship with the caregiver right exactly and 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 I what I would revise I suppose if I had not gotten to elaborating on that is I don't think chance is wrong. And I don't think if to the extent that chance is something of a stand in for real life prison recidivism and kind of traumatization and being institutionalized and its effect on especially young people and families, um, you know, that he's not he's not wrong that this is a huge breach of trust and that it's going that he has a perfectly good reason not to trust people in the future because of what they've done to him in the past. And furthermore, the system certainly will do him the favor of recapitulating uh, all of the things that he expects it to recapitulate. And not, it's not just going to be his fault, right? There's going to be things that he will do innocently that he could get punished for. Uh, and there are also ways in which he will act out 
because he expects that the dynamic is one where he acts out and then he's punished and is acting out his his only really sort of sure. It's, I mean, it's, it's actually Chance is a little too wishful, like in terms of what uh you know what the uh, unaided love of a good family can do for someone who's been traumatized because like you don't uh, children especially don't learn relational skills under those right, right, under right. those circumstances. And so like is it you know is it is it a wonder that he he buries his face deep deep in the wedding cake? Uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. he, has he has the yeah. porcupines on his nose. He has the crawfish on his face, right? He's like, he's constantly being injured by the world around him. But I, but the underlying point is that if you love chance, what do you do for him? Right. Is the question. Right. And, and part of it is that you try to show an example of how, of a way to live that might be better, but it's mostly that you have that intimate, close personal connection with him that that pulls him into something that does mean something. And then you don't betray that trust under any circumstances. Right. Like you have to be very gentle and careful with people who are so hard to trust if you want to bring them into a family. Right. Or into 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 a relationship which takes them out of this sort of self, not even self-fulfilling, but sort of mutually fulfilling cycle of stepping in and out of loss of agency in this traumatic fashion, right? That's only going to get worse the longer that it goes on. And uh, and so he has the one family with Chance and Shadow, and he has Shadow as a sort of uh, dialectic with himself, a sort of Socratic dialogue or mm. platonic dialogue with Shadow as to like, what is the nature of dog, right? Right. Um, and his is like, you know, the nature of dog is to be locked up and, and, and Shadow is like, the nature of dog is to like stand guard, right? Um, and and he goes through his hero's journey. I think it's not a I think it's good and not a coincidence in this movie that Shadow is the narrator, right? Because his perspective on why they would go home in the first place uh is really the the big I don't even know if it's a fully answered question. Right. Wait, it's the, the yeah. Oh that wait, uh, Pete, I think you just said something that that Oh sorry. Sorry, chance is the narrator. Chance okay. There, sorry, there I got you the go. I was about to say. Sorry. Yeah, the chance, chance is it's not a coincidence that chance is the narrator because he's the one who doesn't trust that they should go home. But he's also the one. Yes, absolutely. And so he's the one who changes along the way, right? Yes, like, yes, so yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. yeah, that's the, because shadow shadows, what suspicions, not suspicions, shadows, convictions are confirmed at the end of the, yeah. you know, at the end of the thing. And, and the, you know, and, and, uh, chance sort of learns, Ch- chance learns that, um, you know, there may be bumps in the road, but that he, he is actually welcome in this, in this family. Yeah. Like they well, actually do, you know, Sassy he, puts herself on the line to save him. Right. And then when he sees Shadow in trouble, he finds himself putting himself on the line to try to save Shadow. Right. Right. Which is not what he would have done at the beginning of the story. Yeah. And he sort of finds he sort of finds himself doing it. And then, as we all do, sort of ex post facto has to come up with a narrative <laughs> yeah. of the self that matches his actions yes. and and uh, and brings him home. The cat goes over a waterfall, Pete. <laughs> falls a cat drowning, drowning in the rapids goes over. <laughs> goes over a waterfall it, it yeah. was uh it's deeply de- a, a dog <laughs> falls off of a plank deep into a hole and breaks his leg or i yeah. guess sprains his ankle or something like that he yeah. wouldn't be able to move with the broken leg but the the uh the dog i i i jumped when that happened more than i would have jumped if pennywise the clown just <laughs> popped out of my kitchen cabinet somehow yeah. i'd be like oh yo pennywise the knives are over there i get to murdering but like uh you know but this i i it was uh a heck of a thing pete I, what what have you done 
<laughs> what have you done to me? I think we may need to, uh, I think we may need to leave it there, but, uh, the, you don't want to go into sassy, the cat and the narrative of the self. <laughs> we maybe have enough homeward bound that we need to bring this home. There is a sequel. I'm sure the sequel is trivial and uh, compared to the original in much the same way. The Airbud sequels are light works, right? As opposed to the major, the major original, but sure. um, we, we can always watch it. Yeah. It's on Disney Plus. By the way, this movie is on Disney Plus if you have Disney Plus, and you probably do for things that are worse than it. So, uh, so <laughs> go watch some Talking Dogs. If you have a kid, they'll love it because it has Talking Dogs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's, uh, but but with a kid, maybe who can appreciate the like the the nice pictures of of animals, but doesn't quite understand what's going on because it's it's horrifying and and scarring. I, uh, I, I saw the fox and the hound, Pete, as a young, as a oh, young yeah. child. It was, Secret uh, Nam. animal stories used to be a lot darker, man, than they are now. I can't, just can't, you just can't wait to be king. Are you sure that's what's going to happen, Simba? Oh, dear. <laughs> All right. <laughs> In my day, to... you, you just can't wait for man to come to the forest. <laughs> <laughs> Adulthood meant something different back in the day, uh, for animals that talked in movies. Bambi, uh, <laughs> your mother can't be with you anymore. On that note, <laughs> happy Halloween. Happy oh, Halloween. Sp- spooky. Spooky. Talking animals. Uh, mortality and personal thank you dislocation. For, thank you for listening to our spooky podcast. We'll be back with more Overthinking It podcast next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the spooky culture to a level of spookity. It probably doesn't deserve. <laughs> oh, man. I'm glad you were you were not scared, not scared, but sad. Right? <laughs> oh my goodness, it was so dramatic. <laughs>